Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, November 30. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Katrina Blowers. Hey, Tom, and in today's briefing, what we know so far about Omicron. But this is the way it's going to be, and we're paying the price for not supplying vaccine and help to low- to middle-income countries. You'll know that voice. It's Dr Norman Swan. We'll interview him and find out how this variant emerged and how it could impact the overall global pandemic. First, today's headlines. Plans to open Australia's border to non-resident visa holders has been delayed by two weeks after three more Omicron cases were confirmed yesterday. So as many as 200,000 fully vaxxed students and workers were expected to start arriving from Wednesday, but uh, last night Australia's National Security Cabinet made the decision they'd push that back for two weeks to wait and see how serious the Omicron variant is after hearing advice from the Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly. The number of Omicron cases here in Australia rose from two to five yesterday. Uh, Two new cases in New South Wales, also one in the Northern Territory. That case is in Howard Springs. The other two are also in quarantine. And the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, has been out calling for calm. We're in a vastly different position from where we were on the 1st of February 2020. Uh, We are one of the most highly vaccinated, one of the most recently vaccinated and one of the first to commence a whole-of-nation booster program from around the world. I've got to say, when I heard him say that yesterday, that made me feel calmer about everything. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty chill about this anyway, Tom, as you know. I'm, I'm staying pretty relaxed about it until I have to hit the panic button. But the fact that we are recently vaccinated too, I think stands us in good stead. Mm, yeah, I'm so glad our vaccine rollout was late. It's just really paying <laughs> now dividends. We are. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of other countries have uh, now detected Omicron overnight. Spain, Sweden, the Canadian province of Quebec have all detected single cases, while Portugal has actually detected 13 cases linked to a single soccer team. Yeah, and on the border news, more countries have joined Israel in completely closing their borders. That's Japan and Morocco uh, not letting any foreigners into the country. And the UK has up their testing for new arrivals. The Philippines have barred arrivals from seven European countries. And Singapore has delayed quarantine-free travel with several Middle Eastern countries. Australia's expert immunisation panel will review whether COVID booster shots should be rolled out sooner following the arrival of the Omicron strain. I have asked Atagi... Uh, to uh, review the booster timeframes. Greg Hunt getting a lot of airtime in today's <laughs> briefing. Um, the current advice from Atagi is that people get a booster six months after their second shot. So under that current six-month timetable, 1.5 million Australians will be eligible for a booster by Christmas, but that could change. Yeah, in the UK, it has already. They've shortened that gap between second doses and boosters from six to three months, and they're opening booster access to all adults. Up until now, it was only for those over the age of 40. Yeah, and speaking of a a sort of a forward-leaning, positive posture to this whole situation, Katrina, um, some interesting silver lining I've been reading about this morning is that if this strain is more transmissible but the symptoms are milder, it could actually overtake Delta but do less damage, which provides actually a better pathway out of the pandemic. It becomes more like the flu. That is one theory going around and fingers crossed it proves to be true. I think probably the proviso to put under that little bit of optimism is that this really hasn't been around that long, this variant, so we don't know how 
deadly or, or how harmful it, it really is yet. Early signs are that it's milder, but we mm. need to wait a bit longer before we really confirm that. Yeah, and I know that um, they're doing research here in Australia. Of course, they're doing research all over the world of the efficacy of vaccines against this new strain. But at the Uni of New South Wales, they've begun growing it in the lab. They expect it to bloom by the weekend. But it is expected to be a couple of weeks before we know just what this virus does and how our current vaccines react and whether the big vaccine manufacturers will have to make a new vaccine in response to this. The family of missing Belgian backpacker Theo Hayes have questioned police theories that their son fell into the ocean at Byron Bay in June 2019. It is a strong belief that Theo couldn't have been alone after leaving Cheeky Monkey Bar. We believe someone from that night knows something about his disappearance. So that's Tio's dad, Lauren Ayers, speaking there. The family's in Byron Bay for the coronial inquest into Tio's disappearance. On the first day yesterday, police told the inquiry they believe he clambered up the beachside cliffs, dropped his phone, then fell and was swept out to sea. Investigators have been relying on location data traced from his phone, but the family say they don't think the son would have gone alone to the cliffs. The trial of British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell starts in New York today. Now, Maxwell is accused of helping her longtime former partner, sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, sexually abuse underage girls by trafficking those girls for him. Opening arguments are expected to be heard today in this very high-profile trial. Maxwell has pleaded not guilty on the six charges. I mean, one of the questions, Katrina, everyone's wondering is, could this implicate Prince Andrew? Can one man run two big companies? Well, Twitter CEO and co-founder Jack Dorsey probably thinks he can't because he's announced he will step down as boss of the social media giant. Yeah, so in a statement he said uh, Twitter was ready to move on from its founders, which is possibly true. But the other big issue here, as some investors were pointing out, um, there was concern that he was spending too much time on his other company, Square, which he's the CEO and founder of, and not enough time on Twitter. And um, yeah, well, Square has become three times the size of Twitter. And there are a lot of concerns whether you can really do both. That's so amazing that you can come up with a huge platform like Twitter and then just go, oh, here's another thought bubble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just going to make me a few more billion. Uh, Twitter's shares bounced 11% on the news, which suggests investors probably liked that news. But today in trading, they're back down to where they were before that announcement by Dorsey. Yeah, so he sent the first tweet on the site in 2006. They were much more beautiful, innocent times before <laughs> before it was plagued by the problems of misinformation and debates Trolls. over free speech. Yeah, Donald yeah. Trump. Um, Twitter has gotten extremely messy, um, but still a very important platform. And Australia's most famous Indigenous actor, David Gulpilil, has died at age 68 from cancer. He first appeared in the 1971 film Walkabout and became one of the finest actors the country has produced, featuring in films like Crocodile Dundee, Storm Boy, The Tracker, Ten Canoes and Rabbit Proof Fence. Yeah, this is really, really sad. Um, he was an amazing man, walk between two cultures amongst his people um, up in Arnhem Land and the rest of the country all over our cinema screens and television screens. If you see his face in a news article, you know exactly who we're talking about. It was such a 
a beautiful and famous face. Um, he was made a member of Order of Australia in 1987. He was also Northern Territory's Australian of the Year in 2005. And in 2019, received a NAIDOC Lifetime Achievement Award. What was your favourite film of David Gopalil? Do you know, I've got such a soft spot for Storm Boy. I think because I studied it in school <laughs> yeah, and then I then I showed my kids and yeah, Mr. Percival. There's now a bar in Brisbane called Mr. Percival. So <laughs> I get to relive those fond memories all over again. Yeah, beautiful. All right, in just a moment, Dr. Norman Swan. All right, we're going to learn as much as we can about the Omicron variant with Dr. Norman Swan. Now, he is the ABC's leading COVID reporter. He also hosts the daily CoronaCast podcast. Norman Swan, should we be panicking? Not yet, but, you know, just got to be cautious here. This is a virus that's made a significant genetic leap with multiple mutations. There's a big but here is that there's a big difference between seeing the genetic mutations on the virus and how the virus actually behaves in real life. Let's just take a couple of examples of why you might just be cautious before panicking, if you like. Mm. One is that the virus probably emerged two months ago. That's what the geneticists say. And if that's true, then why didn't it take over sooner than this? Mm. Well, there's all sorts of reasons why it might not have, but it's just a reason to think, well, yep, the initial signs are that it's very infectious, but it may not turn out to be as infectious. Could be, but we don't know yet. The other is um, vaccine resistance. It's not mutated around somebody who's had been vaccinated. It's almost certainly come out of somebody who's immunocompromised. We don't know that for sure yet, but that's what's likely. And that means that there is a bit of vaccine resistance, but how much yet to be seen? Where that's going to probably land, probably, we don't know yet, is that you more likely to be infected, but the vaccine will still protect you against serious disease. And it looks like being a mild virus at the moment. It's so early, anything can change. One of the questions people have been asking me is how do viruses mutate? I think this one's got more than 30 variations. How does it happen? A virus doesn't survive by itself. It's got to get inside our body, take over the cell, tell the cell to produce more virus. And as the virus replicates and multiplies inside our body, it actually makes mistakes in copying its own genetic material, its own RNA. So every time it replicates, a mistake is made. And lots and lots of these mistakes are made. Now, most of them don't mean very much or matter, but occasionally one does. When this occurs in somebody who's immunocompromised, which is the theory where this one came from, so somebody with HIV, is that the virus, because you don't mount a very good antibody response, the virus multiplies huge amounts in your body, and therefore a lot of mistakes occur. And it gives the chance for the stronger versions of the virus to survive, if you like. So one way the virus does not survive very well is by killing more people. So it's to the virus's advantage that it just makes you a bit sick so that you can spread it to others. But if it kills everybody, that version of the virus isn't going to survive. So one way is to find its way around the antibodies, and that's how you get vaccine resistance, because they're the same antibodies as we produce to the vaccine. The other way is to become more contagious, so that when you cough or when you breathe out the virus, it's more likely to stick on somebody else. And it's those mutations that survive, it's evolution at work at hyperspeed. Okay, so tell us more about the story of this variant. The WHO said the first detection was November 9, but you're saying it actually started probably around two months ago. 
That's what some geneticists are saying who've been looking at the uh, genetic evolution of the virus and where and the various versions that have occurred. So I think it's November 11th, maybe it's November 9th in Botswana, three cases. Mm. By looking at how the virus has changed since then, they can actually go back in time. And some geneticists, evolutionary biologists are saying it could have emerged in September. But it takes a while for the first detection to take place, you know, two or three weeks later in Botswana. It could well have been anywhere else, and we still don't know where this virus would have emerged from. Likely Southern Africa, because that's where a lot Mm. of cases seem to be, but we don't know for sure. How is this story different to what happened with Delta? It's pretty much the same, really. We we still don't know how Delta emerged, but it almost certainly emerged in India in October of last year, and probably in a malnourished population where high numbers of people have the virus mutating furiously. And because you've got so many versions of the virus being produced in a non-immune population, one of them spins off by the play of chance that survives better. And that was Delta, and it's a pretty muscular virus. So if this one does push Delta out of the way, as it seemingly looks as though it does, it's even more contagious. So how worried about that should we be? I mean, when you look at the graph of cases in South Africa, it looks like they're coming on to another fourth wave, but those first three waves were fairly steep in their infection rate as well. In practical terms, and I guess when we consider the right policy response, is it just similar to those other outbreaks potentially? The difference between October last year and Delta and now is some states are well up into the high, the, the mid-90s in terms of immunisation rates. And therefore, we are reasonably well protected. It's a different question for different countries as to how this will affect us. So for low and middle-income countries with very low rates of immunisation, 24% in South Africa, 19% in Botswana, this is a major issue and really important depending on how severe the illness is. And the early indications, and I emphasise that early, this does not cause serious illness, but it's very early days. So the policy response will vary according to the level of vaccination in each country. And we could be okay, but the proviso there is that we have the right policy for booster shots. And at the moment, we're just a little bit slow on the uptake probably. Let's talk a little bit about those policy settings. So we've stopped flights from Southern African countries of concerns. We've introduced 72 hours of self-isolation for all returnees. There's also talk in some states of reintroducing two weeks of quarantine. What do you reckon? Have we got the response right so far? Probably not. The South Africans are very angry at the, at the borders going up. It served us very well last year. I think that at 90-odd percent vaccination, What you can say is it should be a temporary response just to delay things so that you can see what the nature of this virus is. And over the next few days, that should become clear. And if it doesn't produce serious disease in vaccinated people, we should probably be less concerned about it. 72 hours doesn't really get you anywhere. It's just a slight delay. Probably if you're going to do it, it should be five days. But if you're going to go to hotel quarantine, that's a problem itself because hotel quarantine is not safe. You could go in negative and come out positive. We had a high rate of spread in hotel quarantine. It's not fit for purpose. And we go back into that situation. Isolating people at home might be the best option if they're able to. But then how do you police that? These are not easy decisions to make, but it's only a delaying tactic in a sense till you find out what the nature of this virus is. But this is the way it's going to be, and we're paying the price for not supplying vaccine and help to low- to middle-income countries. 
That was Dr. Norman Swan, who hosts the CoronaCast podcast with the ABC. He is a medically trained doctor, has been a leading voice on COVID. I think some people have been critical of him in the past, Katrina, of being too pessimistic, but he was saying there not to be panicking at this stage. Mm. Which I think is hard for a lot of us because we've all got Christmas plans and we're looking for, you know, borders to open and also internationally travel resuming. Mm. Yeah, well, in my family, we've got my brother, his wife and three kids coming out for Christmas. They're meant to be arriving just a few days beforehand. So the whole family's now watching, you know, what sort of restrictions are going to be imposed. Um, You know, at this stage, it's 72 hours of self-isolation. It's like... Well, that's fine. You probably need that to recover from jet lag anyway, especially traveling across the world with three kids. But if it goes to two weeks, that's a total game changer for people returning. A lot of people won't do that. So that'll be Mm. a big one to watch as the various states decide how quickly or how intensely to respond to this emerging variant. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, you will have heard of Grace Tame. You will have heard of Brittany Higgins. We'll introduce you to Saxon Mullins. She's used her trauma to change the laws in an incredible way in New South Wales. Listener.